those who are gathered online as well, and then we'll get into the scriptures. Father, your spirit carries us in your word. Lord, may we be carried by him into your presence as we have in song and giving and service. Continually, always in your presence. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Um, this, this, this phrase, just so you know who this guy is, um, the, the phrase that's translated in high favor, it means that he shared faces with the king of, um, of Aram or the king of Syria. Uh, what that means, the, the, the Hebrew word for to be in the presence of someone is to see their face. All right? That's how Hebrews described being in somebody's presence is to see their face. Um, and to share their face is to be their most trusted advisor, their companion, and to speak for them. It's very rare that you hear somebody described this way. And the idea is that this guy Naaman is actually, he is actually almost like, he's like the second man in the kingdom of Aram. He's a very trusted, close um, uh, person to the king of Aram, the king of Syria. Now, that's important because if you've been tracking the story of the kings of Israel and the king of... They're always fighting. Israel and Aram are constantly fighting this whole time. They've got these, uh, they've got these little battles going on. Ahab dies in the battle of Ramoth-Gilead um, against the Arameans. There's, there's, there's sieges and there's battles and all kinds of stuff. Well, Ahab's son, Jehoram, is king of Israel now. And obviously there's still trouble because we can continue reading and we get this. Um, now, he was a mighty man of valor, this is Naaman, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, or the Arameans, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. So he goes and talks to the king of Aram, who... And the king of Aram is at war with the king of Israel. All right, so we're all on the same board here. And he says, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria, the king of Aram, said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, I got a lot of questions about this conversation. Because these two countries have been at war for a generation now. And when Naaman, who the king of Aram trusts so much that he shares his face, Naaman says to him, hey, there's a prophet in Israel who can hear, heal me of my leprosy. What do you think? And the king of Aram says, yeah, go ahead. I'll write a letter to the king of Israel. Now, if I'm Naaman, I'm going, 
could we skip that? Could I just go without the letter to your enemy? I don't think that's going to go well. He says, now I'm going to write a letter to the king of Israel. Tell him to take care of you. Now, if Naaman is the commander of the armies of Aram, it's his armies that are raiding Israel. He's commanding the armies that are raiding this country. Keep that in mind. So he's about to go, as the guy in the command of the army that's been raiding Israel, go to the king of Israel and say to him, can we borrow one of your prophets so I can get healed of this disease so I can raid you more? That's what's going on. Um, so here we go. So Naaman went, at verse, verse, uh, verse 5, and the king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothes, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now I have a question on whether the king of Aram, the king of Syria, has a hearing problem. Because it wasn't the king of Israel that was supposed to heal him. It's the prophet that's supposed to heal him. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He says, I know what this is all about. He sends this guy to me and asks me to heal him, knowing that I can't heal him. And when I send the guy back and say I can't heal him, then he's going to use it as an excuse to fight me. He's going to use it as an excuse to escalate the war. This is all diplomatic games. I don't know what to do about this. Do I kill the guy? Do I, uh, what do I do? Verse 8, but, uh, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his, I love this line. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So the guy in charge of the raids of Israel decides to go to Israel to be healed and he goes with the things that you use to raid Israel. Now why does he do that? You should know why he does that. Because it does look a little out of place. Remember back in verse 5 when it said that he, he was taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing, clothing? I know that we pay for things in shekels and talents all the time. Um, I want you to know he's carrying with him approximately $6 million worth of stuff. I would take a couple chariots too. Um, that gold alone in today's current, today's prices, that gold alone is worth five and a half million dollars. So Naaman goes to Israel with six million dollars worth of stuff. That's why those, those in the back office of this who have seen my planning documents in planning center, I called this sermon the six million dollar man, um, which is a reference that only people my age and older are going to get. Um, but, uh, but he goes... He goes, to, he goes to the king with $6 million and says, I'm willing to pay up to be healed. I am really willing to put it on the line. Uh, those changes of clothing that you read, it's like, oh, so he brought 10 changes of clothing. What's the big deal? Um, this is, is valuable, valuable stuff. This is the, the clothing. It's actually the same word. If you remember way back in the book of Joshua, 
there's a battle at a place called Ai, and they find out there's a guy named Achan who had stolen some stuff from a tent, and he has to be stoned for doing it. He had stolen some stuff from Jericho. And among the things that he stole were these Babylonian garments that were incredibly valuable. Naaman brings 10 of these garments with him, and he says, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to pay up. I'm willing to pay up. Uh, Elisha, um, Elisha is a guy who doesn't seem to like to talk to people himself. And, th- and that's interesting. I, I, I just, I happen to notice, if you remember last chapter, he talks to a Shunammite woman, and he has his servant go out and talk to her. And in this moment, when Naaman comes, um, look at verse 10, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So the guy's outside of Elisha's door, all right, which means that he's not in Syria. Um, he's in Elisha's hometown, which is down by the Jordan. It's at the southeastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, um, the Bethshean Valley, if you want to be specific. Um, and um, you guys remember, he comes from a place called, a place called Abel uh, Mohella, which means the pleasant meadow. Um, and so he's at his house, and he says, sends the messenger, and he says, Naaman, you go ahead, uh, just wash in the Jordan River. Go down, wash in the Jordan River seven times. Your flesh shall be restored. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place. I don't, I mean, I don't know what, what he's looking for him to do. Uh, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Having seen the Jordan River, I can say that's probably true. Um, uh, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, we don't know exactly what leprosy was, this, this biblical thing. We, we, there are some ideas of some modern diseases that people think are associated with it um, that have similar, um, similar things, uh, similar symptoms and things. Um, it was some kind of skin disease, or rather a group of skin diseases. When you read the description in the law about what makes you clean and unclean, it's very confusing. Uh, it's in Leviticus chapter 13. Um, it seems like what would happen with leprosy was that it, it, you would get like a, like a boil or a cyst or something on your skin, and then it would ooze. Um, and that ooze was infectious, um, and it could infect other people. And then it would scab over, and it would turn white. And the white scabs were actually sanitary, but the oozing wasn't. So there's this really weird line in Leviticus 13 where it says if a leper is white head to toe and there is no, the English Standard Version says raw flesh um, or like, like, you know what it you know, looks like when you, when you rip open a scab, the kind of pussy grossness. Um, there, there's, um, you know, if there's no raw flesh, then he's clean. You're like, wait, wait, he's all covered in white and he's clean? Um, but if, if he scrapes the skin off and it, and it begins to ooze again, then he's not clean. So, so what exactly this disease was, it may be a disease that died out, diseases come and go. Um, it may be just a catch-all for a lot of different diseases. You read commentaries, they'll compare it to a disease that was, um, that's called leprosy today. Whether that was actually the same thing or just part of it, we don't really know what's going on. But what we know is that it was growth. 
all right? Um, and, and, and by the way, the, the, the little girl, I'm going to throw this out there, the little, the little girl, the young woman who says to the wife, he says, would that my Lord were with the prophets who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She's showing compassion on the wife because she can't touch her husband because he's got leprosy. And so she says to her mistress, she says, you know, if, if he was healed, you know, this wouldn't be a problem. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of compassion going on in this passage. Um, anyway, he gets dipped and he's cleaned and is restored uh, like a little flesh. I want, you to, I want you to look real quick. I want you to make, I want you to kind of start making some mental comparisons between groups of people in this story. Uh, make a mental comparison between Naaman, this great commander uh, of the armies of Israel, who's a leper, and Jehoram, the king of Israel. The trust that Naaman has at the beginning, and then kind of the struggle, and then the trust at the end, as opposed to the fear and, and the doubt and the suspicion that characterizes Jehoram, the king of Israel. How, how different they are in their relationship to this disease and the possible cure. Think about the difference between, think about the difference between this, the, the servants who are encouraging Naaman and the guy we're about to encounter. Right? This young girl who says, says to Naaman's wife, she says, he, she says there's a prophet that could heal him in Israel. The servants who say to Naaman, what's the big deal? Just wash in the Jordan. Didn't you come all this way? Didn't you just drag us out of Aram with $6 million worth of stuff um, just to say, nah, why don't you just do it? Think about the difference between them and the guy we're about to encounter in just a couple of verses. But, but also look at what Naaman does in this next verse. Just kind of hold that in abeyance. When he returned to the man of God, verse 15, he and all his company, he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant, six million dollar man. But he said, Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, I love this line. I love this moment. If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm. And I, will bow, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord will par- the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. I love the request for two loads of earth because that's just crazy. What does he say? He's saying I want to take a little piece of Israel home, so even when I'm in the midst of the pagans, I'll remember the place where I met God. He he wants to have a little little bit now does he totally understand who Yahweh is he doesn't really understand he thinks he's a he's a he's a kind of a national god tied to the land he's really just encountered this god he doesn't know he's naive but he says give me a couple loads of earth so I can take them home and I can have a bit of Israel where I met God so even when I have to go into the house of the false god Rimon and and my king because he's still going to serve Ben-Hadad the king of Aram when my king leans on my arm because Ben-Hadad was a um, he, he was wet, weak he's actually very sickly toward the end of his reign um, which we'll encounter uh, next week um, when he leans on my arm and we go into this house that the Lord will pardon me why pardon him 
think about the compassion he's showing to the king. That he, he, he's still caring for this king. He's still the servant of this king, even though he's been healed by the God of his enemies. And this is, this is a weird dynamic that's going on here. There's, a, there's all kinds of applications and things we could make, but I think what's important is we remember that the Bible doesn't always tell us the way that things should be. It tells us the way that things were. And this is what he said. This is what he did. So in his naivety, this is what, what Naaman does. And Elisha says to him, go in peace. So again, look at Naaman. Look at, look at his, his responses. Look at his reactions. Look at Jehoram, who should really know better. He grew up, he's seen Elijah and Elisha at work. And yet he doesn't even think, this blows my mind about Jehoram, that he doesn't even think that when the letter comes from the king of Aram, that he should call Elisha. He doesn't even think to call Elisha. He's got a guy who does crazy stuff. Why not call him? But instead he freaks out about how Aram is going to, oh, now we're going to have a war. And that's why Elisha says to him, he says, don't you realize what will happen when I heal him? All the people in Aram are going to have to admit that Yahweh, the God of Israel, did something that their God couldn't do. I mean, this is an extraordinary relationship that's going on. And I know I'm bouncing all over the place on this. I, I, I want you to get the network of this, how, how, how jumbled up this story is. Then verse, the end of verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from, gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. In other words, he says, he deserves to pay. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Now see, this is, this is not naivety. He, know, he says, as the Lord lives. Why? He thinks that God is a God who should get paid. All right? As the Lord lives, I will run out. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He should know better. And get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? This is the second story where that, that question has come up. And there's a, there's a parallel between those two as well. Is all well? And he said, if you haven't noticed, by the way, this is a side tangent, but if you haven't noticed, this is a very, very intricately constructed story. Elisha's story, things keep coming in and out. They keep weaving all over the place. Um, and that's on purpose. He said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Now, he's not asking for the six million dollars. He's asking for maybe twenty thousand. You know, he's a, it, it, you know, I don't want to. I'm not being greedy. There are new two sons of prophets, by the way. He wants it for himself. And Naaman said, "Be pleased to accept two talents." And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags because he's naive. He thinks, "Oh, well, this guy, he's obviously telling me what Elijah wants, so I'll go ahead and take care of this." He, he ties up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes, and he laid them on two of his servants, and he, they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand, put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. And he went and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. 
Well, that's the wrong thing to say to the prophet of God. But he said to him, this is Elisha said to Gehazi, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Catch what Elisha says. He said, God gave freely, and you took advantage, and now you've wrecked the whole thing. See, when Naaman was headed back to Aram, he could have gone back to Aram and said, I had leprosy. You all knew I was a leper. My wife knew I was a leper. And I went, to, I went to, down to Israel, and I took $6 million with me. And the king didn't know what to do with me. And then a lousy prophet who wouldn't even come out of his house to talk to me. Sorry, Siri. Um, a lousy prophet who wouldn't even come out of his house to talk to me sent me to wash in a dirty river, and wouldn't you know, it healed me, and then he wouldn't take any money. And I just got these two loads of dirt to remind everybody that there's a God in Israel. Instead, he goes home with two servants who say, God of Israel will heal you and say he doesn't want anything. But he really does. Yeah, they didn't want the $6 million, but they were content to take the money. They wanted something. You can buy the healing of the God of Israel. The God who can get bought is a God who can be defeated in war. See, remember, all the way back in First Kings chapter First uh, uh, Kings chapter nineteen, I think it is. There's a war between Israel and Aram that's been going on, and Ar- Aram came down and tried to lay siege to Samaria, and God defeated them there, and then. Aram came down and they met at the plain of Aphek and God defeated them there because the, the Arameans said that, that God was a God of the mountains and the hills and he proved that he was God of the plains. And then there was the battle of Ramoth-Gilead which even though Ahab died in the battle, Israel still stood, stood their own. They managed to... Aram's been looking for a reason, a way to defeat the God of Israel for decades. And now they find out that he can be bought. Not only that he can be bought, now this isn't true, but they think it, he can be bought a lot cheaper than they think it takes to buy him. It's a lot easier to manipulate this God than we thought it was. All you got to do is offer a lot, and he'll take a little. And what this sets up is one of the worst moments in the history of Israel the siege of Samaria where people are eating their own children this is this sets up the darkest day of Israel's history all because Gehazi just couldn't help himself he just wanted a little bit 
Now, you can take whatever application you want from this. But I'll tell you the application I take from it. For myself. A little bit of compromise has a whole lot of cost. A little bit of letting yourself think that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob operates like the gods of this world has a substantial, significant, detrimental effect on your ability to communicate, on your ability to speak for your God. Now, none of us are perfect. We all stumble. We all make mistakes. But it doesn't take much for us to wander down a dark road. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a reference to something. I'm going to leave it out there. This weekend, a televangelist went on his show, anointed his ha- hand with oil, held it out to the camera, and told the people watching that he could heal them of the coronavirus through their television. And I honestly believe that he believes what he says. I think he believes it. I don't think he's a shyster. I don't think he's, a, he's trying to play on... I mean, he could be, but I don't think he is. I think he has so utterly convinced himself that his version of God is the version of God that's in the Bible. He's so compromised his beliefs in, in his particular way of doing things And you can Google it, it's out there. The atheists are having a blast with it. He's so convinced himself that he has the power to do this thing. And it all starts with a little compromise. A little choice that God is what I think he is rather than who he he really is. It all starts with a, well, you know, a little wouldn't hurt. Can I propose to you that in order to be a follower of Christ, you have to be a fanatic? You have to be an idealistic fool. And I say that in the most positive way. You have to believe that the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible. You have to believe that He will do what He says He will do, that He will not do what He says He won't do. And you have to be willing to suspend your disbelief and standards of his behavior in favor of his revealed nature. You say, but, but I don't want to do that. I want to have the answers to the questions. I want to have the way to buy God's favor. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Christian is a person who has a fanatical devotion to a God they do not fully understand. I'm not okay with that, but it's the reality, so I live with it. I wish that he was manageable. I wish that he was obtainable. I wish he was manipulable. Is that a word, manipulable? 
but he's not. It is now. He's not. He's not. Gehazi spends a, a lifetime, the rest of his life as a leper. He receives the impurity that will remove him from his capacity to serve the prophet, to observe the law. He will be outside of society for the rest of his life, all because of a couple changes of clothes, a small lie to get a little bit of money for himself probably thinking that he would be able to better take care of Elisha if he just had a little bit of funds. Oh, what a better servant I'd be if I had a couple talents of silver. And he brings chaos down with his choice. Now again, thankfully, we live in grace. The extreme, the outlier situations like this, they are not commonplace for us. And we have to always be careful when we read the Old Testament that we don't sit there and go, well, this is the formula for success. We have to read it. We have to understand the principles that underlie it. And then we have to see the loving kindness and compassion of our God revealed upon us in comparison sometimes and walk together. Anyway, I went a little longer than I intended to. We started a little late, but let's go ahead and have a uh, we're going to finish worship, so let me explain how we're going to do that. Uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to stand up. We're going to sing the doxology. Um, and the ushers are going to be in the back with the baskets for the offering. Um, this is extremely unorthodox. Um, it's very odd. I appreciate that it is. Uh, what I'm going to ask is that you hold off your socialization. By all means, talk to each other from a social distance if you want. Um, but... Um, but go ahead and if, you're, if you have an off, gifts and offerings that you're giving today, go ahead and at the, after we've sung the doxology, head to the back, drop it in the baskets um, so, that, uh, so that, that, can be, that can be taken and counted and sterilized and all that stuff. Um, so that I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, you know, it, money, money's the number one conveyance of, of germs in, in, in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we want to make sure that we're, we're taking care of that. But if we just do that, that would be great. I appreciate everybody being very tolerant of the inconveniences that exist um, in this time. Um, and uh, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, then we'll sing the doxology together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the mystery of following you. Um, thank you for compassion and grace. Um, that these kind of outlier situations, uh, when we fail, it doesn't, it's not an immediate um, condemnation upon us as we often see in Scripture, but rather your, your loving kindness is directed toward us. Your grace um, holds back the punishments that we are all due. Um, Lord, we ask that you would uh, watch over all of our family, our extended family, uh, not just the people here, um, that worship here, but uh, I think of uh, our folks who are in other countries, the Swensons in Japan, uh, the Posts in Ireland. Um, Lord, uh, we, we pray that you would uh, protect them as they serve and minister. Lord, we think of Mike uh, Knight down in Namibia, even though um, there's really um, no activity of the virus or anything down there. We know how quickly things can spread in Africa. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would um, keep us safe Keep us wise. Lord, 
But most importantly, keep us wholly and completely devoted to you. May our love and devotion to you and your word outstrip our love and devotion to all things. Because it's only in loving you that we learn to love others. It's only in reading your word that we find true truth. Lord, may you be glorified in our midst. 